book of Hebrews called The King's Ransom, and that'll be going for some time. We do have some postcards and things there. I encourage you to invite someone to be a part of it. It's going to be a great series. Um, adult education. We are going to do a three-part series right after this uh, uh, service on how to share your faith. Many of us want to share their faith with someone. We have this great message, and we want to tell friends, coworkers, compatriots about it, but we just don't know how to do it. And so we don't. And uh, so we're going to have some very practical teaching and training on how to share your faith. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Grab a bagel, uh, some coffee afterwards, and in uh, 10 minutes after the service, it'll be down the hall, first classroom on the right. Women's Bible study is starting up June 30th. And invite all men out to our Wings Quest, six, uh, June 28th, the search for the perfect buffalo wing. I know it's cheesy, but that's the way men are, so just let it ride. Excellent. Okay, well, let's turn to our passage, which we can find in the insert of our bulletin. That's Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Actually, before I talk about that, I want to give a little background on Hebrews. The reason I picked Hebrews is Hebrews comes at the person of Jesus in a way almost entirely different than all the other books of the New Testament. Now, a little background on the book of Hebrews. It's very interesting. One thing, we're not exactly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. If you read these other New Testament books, you know, it always says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, and so forth. There is no explanation there of who wrote the book of Hebrews. But we know who the book of Hebrews was written to. It was written to urban Christians. These were Christians, most likely a small church in a city, far away from Jerusalem. Some people think it was Rome. We're not exactly sure. But it was a Hellenistic city. And so there was a small church, and these people knew the Old Testament. Some of them undoubtedly, maybe most of them were Jewish, but had never been to Israel. But these were people that knew the Old Testament. So I want you to draw some parallels. Small church like us. People who knew the Old Testament like us. But what they lived in was a pluralistic society. And what that means is everybody brought their God into the city. Multiple gods. All sorts of a polytheistic society. But these Christians, they had the audacity to maintain that there was one God above all who deserved to be worshipped above all other gods. Well, this didn't play well with the rest of the people in the city. And so we see that this church, these people, are suffering. They're suffering economically because they haven't been able, they haven't worshipped the gods of the guilds. Their economic employment has been stopped. They're being persecuted physically, most likely, possibly. Um, they are suffering persecution. And it's getting hard to be a Christian in this city. And invariably, they're asking this question. If our God is the right one, why is life so hard? We certainly can identify with that question, can we? If our God that we serve is the right one, why is life so hard? Well, the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to address this very question. But he doesn't make nice about this issue. He doesn't say, there, there, everything's going to be okay. Rather, he tells us that life is a journey, that you're on this journey through life, and it's going to be hard. And the only way you're going to make it through, church, is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to help you to get through this journey of life. 
And so he's writing to help show them that, yes, this one that you believed in, this Jesus, is the one. And he's pulling from the Old Testament. He's pulling from all these different places to help them remember that what they believed is really true. And so the message of Hebrews is to pay close attention because if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you're going to be able to get through. So let's read the passage, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you saw this uh, recent news piece in NPR concerning the organization uh, SETI, S-E-T-I. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's the uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And this is an organization that's been going on for over 60 years, some of it funded by the United States government, searching the skies for a signal of life from other planets. Many of you have seen the, the Allen Telescope Array, those huge radio telescopes, rows and rows of them, searching the sky, scanning it to wonder, are we alone or is something else out there? So their funding was temporarily suspended for the first time in 60 years. They stopped scanning. The reason I bring up that illustration is because I think that there is a sense that man is like that as well. Scanning the sky, not for extraterrestrial life, but for God. Is there a God out there? If so, what is he like? What does he have to say for us? Why were we created? Why are we here? What are we to do with our life? Man is scanning the sky, wondering, has God sent us a message? And this passage tells us that, yes, God has spoken through the prophets long ago in various times and various ways, and now he has spoken definitively through his son. Now, many religions say this. Many religions say that God has spoken through them, so the question is, how can we be sure that God is speaking through this Jesus? And so this writer is writing to assure them of three things. Number one, that the medium is the message. That's not number one, but that Christ is the message. And that God has given us the Son that contains the final word of God. So we must listen to it. That's point one. God has given us the Son that contains the final word of God. So we must listen to it. But number two, God has also given us the Son that contains the glory of God. And so we must worship Him. And then final three, God has given us the message that contains the love of God. And so we must accept Him. Those three things are the points that this writer is trying to hit on and that we're going to discuss about. First, God has given us the message, the Son that contains the final word of God. Look to verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son. We see here that God has been speaking. Since the beginning of mankind, God has been communicating himself. 
and specifically in the past through the nation of Israel. That God has spoken through these prophets many times. And so what the Bible is, is a log of God's communication with man. When he spoke with Abraham and he spoke to him in a dream and he said, all nations will be blessed through you. When he spoke to Moses and he told him to go free the Israelites. When he spoke to the Israelite nation on Mount Sinai and he gave them the Ten Commandments of how they were to live. And when he spoke to David, telling them that he would establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom through him that would never fail. He has spoke to man in many times, but he's also spoken in various ways, hasn't he? He's spoken through a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah on Mount Carmel, remember, with just a whisper. He's even spoken through a donkey, through many times and various ways God has spoken. But the ways in which God has spoken here to date have been incomplete. That word actually, uh, in various ways, translated in Greek is polytropos, which literally means many pieces. God has spoken to us in many pieces in the past, but the message he has now brought is a new message, a more complete message. He has spoken through his son. Notice he talks about the past, what happened in the past, and now what has happened in the present. And we see here that the message that God has brought to mankind is not more information. God has not wanted to give more information. What God has wanted to communicate is himself. God has brought us himself. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This word exact representation in the Greek literally is translated character. That's where we get the word character from the Greek. And what this word character would mean is when an emperor would want to have an image of himself done, he would get an artist who would sculpt, let's say he was going to make coins, and he would have an artist sculpt a character of himself onto a die. And then they would go ahead and they would take soft metal, they would heat the coins and, so and soften the coins, and they would take the character and they would imprint it on the soft metal and then it would cool, and there would be the character of the imprint of the emperor. That's what he's saying here. The exact representation of God's being has come to you. Now, why would God do this? Because ultimately, what we understand from God sending the Son is what God wants is a relationship. And you can't have a relationship with a concept, can you? You need to know enough information about someone to have a relationship with them. Imagine if I saw uh, my wife in a picture, Lee Ellen in a picture, and I fell in love with her, and I worshipped her, and I wanted to marry her. But I wouldn't really be in a relationship with her, would I? Because I don't know her characteristics, her character, who she is, her qualities. It's only when I understand her in her finality of who she is that I can have a relationship. And that's what God has done in the last days. Notice those, those words. In the last days, he has spoken to us through his son. What God has given us is the final revelation. That from now until the end of time, there will be no other revelation because the final one has been given. The son is the summa of what God has been trying to communicate. You know, it's interesting, if you look in the Old Testament and you see the prophets of old, they come along and they say, the Lord says to you, ba 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 ba. 
the Lord says to you, blah, 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 blah. It's always the same thing, the Lord said. But you notice when Jesus comes along, he never, ever, ever said that phrase, the Lord said, did he? The phrase he said was, truly, truly, I say unto you. The Lord has come, and he has given us his final word. See, God needs to communicate nothing else because he has communicated himself. In the years, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, there were a tremendous amount of discoveries in Egypt concerning the pyramids and all of these things that had been discovered about the uh, culture of Egypt. They discovered this vast civilization, uh, very advanced. But there was one problem. They couldn't read the language because the language was in hieroglyphs, Egyptian hieroglyphs. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're these characters. And so they saw all this treasure trove of information, but there was no way to decipher it. They were scratching their head, puzzled at the civilization until a French soldier came across a stone in 1799. And on the stone, it had three scripts. The top script was written in hieroglyphs. The middle was written in what's called a demotic script. And the bottom was written in ancient Greek. And they were, they were copies of each other, translations. This is what we call the Rosetta Stone. They found the Rosetta Stone, and with the Rosetta Stone, they could unlock what the hieroglyphics said, and they could understand what the Egyptian civilization was about. See, that's Jesus. In the last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the exact representation of God. He's the Rosetta Stone that helps us to understand who God is and what God wants and what God has for us. See, Jesus uh, does not need to bring us any more truth because he is the truth. There needs to be no more words spoken because Jesus is the word. And so, since God has given us his complete word, the question I have for you is what are you looking for? Where are you going to find the message of who God is and who you are? It is God. Are you scanning the sky like the SETI organization, trying to find your meaning, trying to find your purpose, trying to find God in something else? Maybe your job, that you have this profession and you're looking to your job, scanning it, trying to find God and who you are. Maybe it's another person. Maybe you're looking to them, trying to find life through another person. Maybe it's the media. You know, isn't the media interesting? There's 180 channels and there's nothing on. But we're looking to the media. We're looking to find answers in all of these places. The reality is you won't find it because God has given us the final message that brings all the polytropos together. So we must look to Jesus for the final word. We must look to him through the written word which he has given us. And we must look to him through the living word, the Holy Spirit that he gives to all who believe in him. If you want to know who God is, look to Christ, the exact representation of God. Well, that brings me to my second point, that God not only gives us a message that contains the final word of God, but it also contains the glory of God. Listen to these words of how the writer explains who Jesus is. He's spoken to us in the last days through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is what we call high Christology, nosebleed Christology, where we see Christ, just these unbelievable claims. Now, we need to understand how the people in this church, when they read this, would have heard it because they were familiar with the Old Testament. The first is this passage is telling us that Jesus is the king. This verse here where it says that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things, the Jews would have known where that came from. That came from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 was called the coronation psalm. When a king, when King David, when any of the kings were brought to power and they were placed on the throne, they would read this coronation song to proclaim the king. But they understood that this psalm was ultimately a messianic psalm, that it foreshadowed the great king who would one day come. Listen to Psalm 2-7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall rule over all with an iron scepter. See, this writer is saying that Jesus is the heir of all things. The one of whom we're speaking is the king of all. All of the nations belong to him. He is ruler over all. He is the great king. He is ruler over you and me. But he's not only the great king. He's also the creator and the sustainer. Notice these words that, that he, uh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He created the word, he created the world. This language here, this church would have understood, is taken from wisdom literature. So the Jews thought that it was wisdom that created the world. Wisdom, the logos, as we've heard. Listen to this verse in Proverbs 8, uh, 22. The Lord, when he's talking about wisdom, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I am appointed from eternity, from the beginning before the world began. This whoever it is has always been. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he gave the sea its boundaries. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. But the writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is wisdom itself that he is the one through whom all the universe has been created. He is the one that sustains the entire universe by the word of his power. I uh, heard this statistic that I couldn't believe because, you know, when you go to the Smithsonian and you hear this stats about the size of the universe and they just boggle the mind. You know, if you were going to take the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, and let's say that distance we would symbolize with a sheet of paper, one sheet of paper. Well, if we were to go from the Earth to the nearest star after the sun, that stack of paper would be 70 feet high. And if we were to take the diameter of our galaxy from one corner to the other corner of our galaxy, that stack of paper would be 310 miles high. And keep in mind that our galaxy is just a speck of dust in relation to the entire universe. 
And yet here is the one who upholds the universe by a simple word of his power. If you remember, we see here that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In the Old Testament, you would see this all the time, that the glory of God, not all the time, but the glory of God would show up in these unbelievable ways. Remember the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke which came to lead 600,000 Israelites out of Egypt, this awe-inspiring pillar which was vaguely in the shape of a man. And at one time, this pillar moved around. Remember, it stopped the Egyptian army from advancing. We also see in the temple, when the temple was created and the glory of God came down and filled the temple, and nobody could enter the temple because of this awe-inspiring glory of God. I think the most powerful is, is Mount Sinai. Remember when this fire comes down on the mountain? on Mount Sinai, and they hear the voice of God speaking. I, I, I talked about this in praying the scripture. And the people were absolutely terrified. Absolutely. They're covering their ears. Do not speak to us. Speak to Moses, because if we hear the voice of the Lord, we will die. You can't even set foot on the mountain, or you will die. All of this radiance, all of this comes down into the person of Jesus Christ. All of the glory of God, the radiance of him coming into a person. Power right in our midst. And yet, we didn't die. Because Jesus Christ brings us the love of God. My third point. But before I go on, I want us to understand that we must take this message seriously. If this one who brought the glory of God stands before us, we must worship him. Can we really make of this one Jesus Christ our personal assistant who waits on us for our beck and call? The one who upholds the universe by the palm of his hands. Yet, can our Christianity not become so compartmentalized? Yeah, we'll go visit him at church. Then we'll put him on the shelf. We'll go call to him when we need him. No, 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 no. If he is the radiance of God's glory, if God has given us the message of the glory of God, we must worship him because he is due our worship. But finally, we must see that this message contains the love of God. There is a reason that we can come near Christ and not die because he brings us the love of God. Notice verse 3. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, there was a reason in the Old Testament that we could not come near the presence of God. And that was because we were sinners. Jesus Christ came to give us a living message. And he came to accomplish something. Purification for our sins. But the question is, how can he purify that which is polluted? How can he make clean that which is dirty? How can he separate sin? reading something interesting about how they refine gold. They take gold in order to refine it, to get it to that, you know, 24 karat pure gold. They have to liquefy it again. And they have to liquefy it, and when they liquefy it, they have to introduce a foreign agent. In this case, it's borax and soda ash. And when they put this agent into the metal, it separates the sin 
Oh, I gave away my point. It separates uh, the impurities from the gold, and that's how you get pure gold. See, God had to introduce an agent into this world in order to separate that which was sinful. See, why did Jesus, at the end, sat de- sit down at the right hand of God? The only reason is because he left it in the first place. That Jesus came down to earth, introduced himself as the agent into our world. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. The agent had to be added. Now, why did he do it? The only answer can be love. Jesus Christ came not only to show his glory, he came to bestow it. You know, I counsel many people uh, as a pastor. I get to talk to people about how they're doing and so forth, and a lot of times I'm speaking with folks, and they're really distraught about things. They're struggling with sin, struggling with the guilt of sin. And I counsel them, and I talk to them about um, God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ and what he's done in the cross and all those things, but they say to themselves, I, I just can't forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. What I've grown to discover is it's not that they can't forgive themselves, it's the idol that they worship can't forgive them. Because idols cannot forgive us. Because idols cannot speak and they cannot hear. See, think for yourself for a second all the things that man worships that will not forgive us. Who is going to get up on a cross and die for you and me? Will your bank account get up on a cross and die for you and me? Will our possessions get up on a cross and die for you and me? Will our career get up on a cross and die for you and me? No, it's only Jesus Christ, the one who brings us the message of the love of God. The medium is truly the message. In Jesus Christ, we get a living word, a word that is eternal, a word that speaks to us even now as it did to the Hebrews. What needs to change in your life based on this message? Maybe you're searching for that final word. Maybe you need to fix your eyes on Jesus instead of all those other things that distract you. What about the glory of God? Perhaps your Christology has gotten less and less nosebleed as you've been affected by the things of this world, that you've forgotten that he is the one who sustains the universe that he is the one who is the king and the heir of all things. Maybe the response is to worship him, to put him in his proper place in your life. And maybe the final thing is to accept his love. Maybe you're that person that says, I just can't forgive myself. I live with guilt all of my life. See, Jesus came to take away sin. Jesus came not only to show his glory, but to give it. And so just like these Hebrews, I want us to grasp and hold on to this fact. In Hebrews 2, he finishes with this question. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You know the most dangerous thing about drifting? You don't know that you are. Remember being out on the ocean, you know, and I'm kind of laying out there enjoying. I'm I'm looking out on the ocean, and it's fantastic. And then I turn around, and lo and behold... How did I get from here to here? 
drifting along. We must pay closer attention, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Trust in Christ, he is the final word. Trust in Christ, he is the glory of God. And trust in Christ, for he contains the love of God. He is the message that you've been looking for. Let's pray.